G'day. Welcome to the Financial Bloke Podcast, the podcast for people seeking the wisdom needed to grow their family's wealth and live a happier, healthier, and more prosperous life. My name's Ben Law, and I am the Financial Bloke. G'day. Welcome back to the Wealth and Wisdom Podcast. Today, we've got the ever-in-demand John Moore. John's been on the podcast a number of times and has been the guest of some of our most popular podcasts, which were all in the succession vein. For anyone interested in going back and listening to some of John's insights, the episodes you need are 24, 31, and 32. Today, we're going to be addressing employees, or more specifically, farm managers. Managing a farm manager can be a challenging task that requires both leadership and a bloody good understanding of what makes humans tick. But if you get it right, it will make a huge difference to the success of your agribusiness. In this episode, we'll explore John's insights into the value of a bloody good manager, the best practices for effectively and efficiently managing a farm manager, and how to get the most out of them, which will ultimately free you up to invest more time with your family or chasing your big goals. So if you're a farm owner and you've got employees or are thinking about taking the next step into getting a farm manager, then this podcast will be right up your alley. Without further delay, welcome, John. Thanks, Ben. Great to be here again. Now, John and I were recently having a discussion about the fact that we've noticed how many farm owners that we've been dealing with have been having trouble with farm managers. And what I mean by trouble is finding them, working out what their actual value is, getting the most out of them, but overall, just retaining them. And so we sort of had a conversation about it and reckoned that this would be a really good topic that would resonate with all of our listeners, especially if you want to scale or build a business rather than just having a job. Now, John, you've been managing employees, including farm managers, for most of your adult life. So for anyone who hasn't heard from you before, can you just give a quick summary of your background, especially when it comes to managing managers? Thanks, Ben. And always great to be back in front of the mic. We seem to have really productive conversations when we do this. As some people will have heard, my, my background is in South Africa. Uh, we ran a big and still do a big dairy farm over there. It grew from 60 cows literally when I came back from uni to milking nearly 1,000 cows now. So just in that simple scaling process, we had to employ management. But going back even before that, you know, being African, we worked with people and for people pretty much all our lives. From growing up as a kid, we had employees, you know, around the house and on the farm. So it came fairly naturally in that we had been in the process and we'd seen other people manage employees and managers. And um, when I decided to scale that business from sort of 60 cows up to the 1,000 that we milk now, and the beef was similar, the beef business, um, I farmed it with my dad and we scaled that from couple of hundred breeders to when I eventually gave the business away to about 1,200 breeders over multiple properties. So I guess I had a clear idea of what and where I wanted the business to go and that was to grow it in a passive way that didn't consume all of my time. So having said that, I knew I needed to get managers and management in place. I had no idea how to do it. So I basically put an advert in the newspaper at some point and um at a very early age, way before my business was probably needing extra labor, I um, found some young guys to come and help me and they became managers. So why do you think it's so important, John, 
to learn the skills on how to effectively manage employees? The reason it's important to develop a skill is basically for the, for growth, as we said. It's to create the space in your business that you can start working on the business rather than only working in it. And it's really when we work on it that we, we see that um, transformational or exponential growth. So that was my main reason was to create the space so that we could I could step back from the coalface and basically help employ other people to help me become more successful and, get, and, and scale. So you, you mentioned in the beginning there, John, that uh, you grew up managing people, like it was just part of life being yes. growing up in South Africa. Obviously, that's not the same for here for farmers and graziers in Australia. You know, the, um, a lot of well, most farmers and graziers are what I'd call rugged individualists. You know, yep. I'll do it all myself. And their solution to their problems is to just work harder. Correct. But what is it someone said uh, one day? I think it was something along the lines of doing the things in that have made you successful in the past to get you where you are now won't be the things that make you successful in the future. Curious, right. And so one of them is being able to deal with people. So is it naturally ingrained in people to be good ma- at managing people or is it skill that has to be learned? I've never really bumped into someone who's highly skilled at managing people in a farming business. I think it's it's learned and it's experiential. And that, that might be the big problem is because very often a farmer or a business will employ someone, have a bad experience, and then they'll tarnish or paint all managers, all employees, that it put them in the too hard basket. That To manage people is just beyond my capability and uh, it's easier for me to go back to being that rugged individual, as you said, and just do it myself because then I'm not, I don't have to take other people into account. And um, you know, managing people is probably the hardest task, I think, in a growing business. It takes intellectual capacity. Um, it takes skill that we haven't been taught naturally. And as you said, particularly in Australia, it was probably the biggest learning curve I went through when I just couldn't understand why people wouldn't employ management to help them grow. They almost resisted it, I'd say, when I could see clearly that it was probably the single quickest way to get and and scale growth was to put more management in place. But a lot of the medium-sized operators really resisted that sort of suggestion, saying that it's just too hard. I've tried once before. My neighbor's tried and has failed, so clearly I can't do it. John, I think it's really important to acknowledge that to be a good rural producer – Traditionally, you haven't had to have been a good communicator and obviously dealing with employees requires you to have a lot of emotional intelligence, but also a lot of ability to communicate clearly and manage conflict, etc. And that's, I think, seems to me to be the hardest thing to overcome. I know as a financial advisor, when I had my business, I employed a number of people and I really struggled. Um, I was good at financial advice, but I, was, I struggled with dealing with people, with the conflict, the complexities of the way people operated, etc. How did you start to develop those skills? Was that something that just came over time or you had to force yourself? yourself to learn those skills? A bit of both, to be honest. Um, in the early days, I'm talking about when I was in my late 20s, early 30s, that's how early I had high-level managers in my in my business. And so over time, obviously, I got better at it because I understood the interpersonal stuff better. I also went and sought um, training, a communication style type training, which was not aimed at a manager-owner relationship, but just at general communication. And probably the thing that stuck out for me the, the most and still does is 
whenever you get into those situations that you think it's going to be above and beyond your capacity is someone said to me, just remain curious, remain curious about that person and don't focus on the task that normally creates the conflict. So remain curious why he reacted or she reacted that way. Be curious. Maybe they're going through some, some personal stuff that you don't know about or you do know about. And you, we make a lot of assumptions when you work with people and that's probably the most dangerous thing I've done is, is assume that other people, managers or other know what you're thinking and you think you know what they're thinking. So no, it's a, it was learned education plus mostly experiential and um, that remaining curious has, has stuck with me for all that time. And it's interesting, John, I think most business owners, whether they be on farm or off, would start with a base level employee. They wouldn't generally employ a manager straight up. So in your mind, what's the difference between just a good solid farm worker and management, farm management material? What's the difference, would you say? Yeah. Most farmers are looking for help. That's their starting point. They want someone to help them do the day-to-day stuff. And um, that's a farm worker, someone who comes there, basically leaves their their brains at the front gate or at home and comes and works. He, he That person or that guy or girl whatever they are, they, they, that's a farm worker. You need proficiency, I'd say, if so a straightforward worker who's employed as such, you know, they, they need to be proficient in the task that you need done. So it could end there. If that's all you're looking for is just a person to mark cattle or brand cattle or dig holes, they need to be the best hole digger in, in the country and then you've got a proficient farm worker. The farm manager is someone quite different. That's a person who ultimately has the capacity and the skill, or maybe you're going to build that skill level with and in them to take over functional, sort of, I call it functional authority, a portion of that business that you don't want to be managing anymore. So you'll hand them that authority to do stuff or to make decisions over time. Sometimes you can employ a farm manager, I guess, at a, at a very senior level straight up. And then that person should come into that position with a significant level of skill. But again, you've got to teach them in the ways of… The way you do things. Yeah, potentially. That's also a bit of a mistake I I see as as trying to mold people into the way you want to do stuff. And if you do that, you lose a huge range of skills that they have that you don't allow them to bring to the table. So, yeah, you can either… I believe you can either train a manager in the process over time or you can bring a higher level manager into the business and it, then there would be different expectations from from the start. Mm. So my experience, John, is there's three things that I always figured with an employee, whether they be a you know, a high-level employee or an entry-level. Competence is obviously the first thing. You want them to be competent. And I always used to believe in my business, I hired for character, trained for skill. What I mean by that is I'd seek out employees that had strong values and good quality character to start with. And then if they didn't quite have the skills, I'd train them for that. There was one instance where I went the opposite, where there was a a need in the business and it needed to be filled quickly and I didn't have time to train someone. And I hired for skill, not for character. And it totally bit me in the ass. It was just a disastrous scenario. You know, I had someone that was highly competent that just just was a terrorist in the organisation. It's like hiring me as your accountant. Yeah. I mean, I have never done any accountancy work, but you tell me that, oh, I'll teach you up in that position and you'll become a good accountant. Exactly what you say. And you know, unless you've got a passion 
and you're teachable, that's not going to, you know, it is going to, you're going to fall fat in your face. So, Absolutely, absolutely. And there was three things that I figured out we needed. Was the first one is, especially as you go up the management or, or the complexity scale into a management position, is first thing you need to be, they need to understand is they need to understand what the job entails, you know, what you're expecting from them yes. really clearly. And you can't employ a manager and treat them like a worker. Number two is they must want it. They must look at that job description, the opportunity that's available, and they must absolutely want it. They're not just there necessarily for a pay packet. They want to do the job. Yeah. And number three, they've got to get the big picture. So they've got to get it. They've got to be able to see what's your big picture here and to get them on board so that they're rowing you know, beside you on the benches because to the right direction. Yeah, space, yeah, space yeah. in that business in which they can flourish, not just in which they can help you flourish. So, very important. Yeah, it's, it's one of the key elements, and uh, we'll talk about that just now of how to probably select or scope for a manager. Well, let's let's kick off there then, John. So, I, I had written down for one of my questions to ask you was, you're obviously a lot of people are heading out into the marketplace and there's good and bad. And it's if you're close to a large regional centre, it's probably easier to employ someone, but the more remote you get, the harder it, it becomes. Yeah. And then what you end up, people end up compromising. So the pool of quality assets just shrinks and you end up hiring for skill, not for character, et cetera. So what should you be looking for in a good manager right from the start? couple of things being that come to mind and, and one is is not actually on the manager side it's it's on, it's on your side of the of the balance sheet and that is why and what type of manager do you want you, you really have to be able to identify what the person or the persons that your business require what do they look like what position are they going to fill and the other one before you even put the advert in the paper is do it before you've grown to the position where you're stressed and stretched so have a strategic plan as to when you want to bring management. And just like you would have a strategic plan when you want to have debt or when you're going to borrow money or when you're going to do a strategic purchase or something. So be strategic, I think, in the way you approach it. Don't just get to the end of your string and then say, well, we have to have someone tomorrow because I'm burning out or I am burnt out. So well, you always make poor decisions when you're under stress. So make sure you're doing these really strategic high-level decisions when you are in a good headspace, so before your business is, is burnt. And you can often see the need before the need arises. And when you're in the heat of it, you very seldom can see the need. You basically just see the problems. So those are the two things I'd, I'd caution or encourage people to look at is make sure the position you're identifying is congruent with the person that you're interviewing and make sure that you're doing that before you've got to the point of, of no return where it's just all hell breaking loose and you just need, at that point, you just need workers. You just need farm farm workers. You don't actually need to manage them because the confusion is set in and you probably won't ever attain that growth. So to be strategic and get those things right. I think well, the other one that I really am clear about is, is, the, is what you alluded to just now, passion. All the managers I've employed have been desperately passionate about agriculture. Neither of them, the two longest serving one of 19 years and 17 years, the two young guys who, who still work for me, neither of them came there with any agricultural experience. So they just were desperate. They drove for thousands of kilometers to come to the position that I'd advertised. I could just tell straight up that they were there for, for the right reasons. And um so what, I, what do I look for? Teachability probably is right high up on my list. Someone who's, who's teachable, someone who's got that um, 
similar values. I've, I've also learned not to employ someone like me. Mm. It's probably the biggest mistake I see is people employ someone just like themselves because you can have a good chat. You can talk about fishing. You can talk about cattle. You can talk about, and the minute you hook into that, you suddenly find that you are employing someone who's just like you, who probably has similar skills, similar capacity, and we're actually looking for someone quite different because we're going to be asking them to do the jobs that probably we don't like doing because that's the space we need to free up so we can go into the more strategic work. Or, or we shouldn't be doing. We shouldn't be doing, mm. yeah. So, yeah, quite often we'll stay doing the jobs that we shouldn't be doing simply because the new manager employee probably also hasn't put his hand up or doesn't want to be doing them. So, yeah, so you've got to set the relationship up really accurately in the beginning, I believe. So how do you do that, John? Because that's a really big thing. I think if you don't set the relationship up right from the start and you just make it easy and just let things go as they are, you're going to have to reset it at some stage. And that's yep. when friction and pain points and conflict are going to come in. Whereas they know right from the start what's expected, yep. then that makes it a whole lot easier. So how do you do that? Someone comes on farm, you've employed them. How do we set them up? Yeah, Ben, I mean, I don't go and source. There, there are organisations that source um, agricultural workers. So that's that's obviously a totally different uh, space. A lot of the farmers I work with and who phone me for for advice or for direction, um, they've got a very frilly advert they want to put in the paper that come join this growing family business that loves each other and we do all these fantastic things. And, and I often look at it and say, well, what part of that is this guy going to do or this, this girl going to do? What exactly are they coming for? And um, so, yeah, advertise correctly. Make sure the description is, is a – business description with the values around it, not the values and the business around. I think those people are coming to work in a business for a family. And you have to probably word it quite carefully that it is a family business, but there's certain tasks in this business that you are going to be required to do. And that's what you're going to be paid for. Mm-hmm. So I set up the initial invitation for a meeting. Um, most people will advertise shortlist 10 people and I find that a bit dangerous times because you're shortlisting against what you perceive to be your values and your, how can I put it, um, you select for people who like you, the words they use, the descriptions they use. If it resonates with you, you kind of shortlist them. If it doesn't, you often don't shortlist them. So I'd rather interview everybody and if they prepare to come out, we'll have a chat with them. So the interview is pretty important. It does give you a chance to ask difficult questions and probably more often than not, it allows them to ask the questions. And I've always flipped it around to the the potential employee to ask me questions. I get more information out of allowing them to ask questions of me than I ask of them. To set up a manager, um, effectively, you need a contract. I'm not exactly sure of all the legalities um, in the different states and around Australia, but you obviously you need a, you need a pretty accurate and legally binding documents to employ them with. I always work 90% on the exit clauses rather than the introductory clauses. As you know, I always say to them, when, when you're in love, it's pretty easy, but when you want to get divorced or split, split this relationship up, that's when the trouble hits the fan. So have that conversation. Make them understand and everyone understand that if things don't work out or if things work out against the contract clauses, Clause 15 is going to be enacted and that gives you so much time to, to terminate or, you know, make sure you've got a really s- simple contract 
make sure you really work hard on the exit strategies, how to get both of you, yourselves out of this and allow the, the employee to, to suggest some, some suggestions, some ideas as to how they would like to, you know, get out of a contract if it's not working because it's never one-sided. It's always two-way street, the reasons for having to get rid of somebody. So once you've got the contract, you know, then they, depending on what you've employed for, have you employed a worker or have you employed a manager? Let's just presume you've employed a manager. You're looking for them to take over certain functions of that business and define that clearly, specifically work with timelines because none of us have all the skill. Uh, a lot of people think they do, but we clearly don't. Um, build in realistic timelines, understand what they don't know. And if they don't know things that you don't know, well, you've got to find expertise to fill those gaps. So it's really communication, really understanding what the other person's skill is, how they can employ it. And as you start down that track, you'll build the bridges if you do well as to how to move forward with, with the person you've employed to, to get the best out of them. Should you let them make mistakes, John? I mean, I, I sense that, you know, someone comes on, they might be highly skilled to understand what they're good and they're not good at or what they do and don't know. You'd have to let them make some mistakes and without, you know, jumping all over them because they didn't do it perfectly is then trying to test out where their strengths and weaknesses are and where they need to maybe be educated or someone else needs to plug that gap. Yeah, I suppose mistakes is is one way of looking at it. It's allowing them to develop their skill base by having the experiences that might not work out as well as, as we think we might have been able to do it. So yet that we might see that as a mistake. I always had a rule that you know, three strikes and you're out. So if you haven't learned, if you can make a mistake and you, it's a genuine judgment error or it's um, something that should have been done differently to avoid the pain that you've now found yourself in, whether it be a financial mistake or a production mistake or something like that, first thing, own up. That's... I could have done better, not necessarily that I've made a mistake, but we could have done this differently. I always go to the questions. Instead of accusing, I'd always try and, if I'm not too hot under the collars, try and revert that to a question. You know, could you have done that better? What would it have looked like if you had done A, B, or C? Uh, rather than just you know, going straight up and saying, you've made a total blunder of this, and these are my reasons why. I'd rather find out that person's reasons why that thing failed. And from that, you both learn and you understand where the shortcomings are. And then once that mistake's been made, you can together correct it. The biggest mistake I see is people watching someone make a mistake and then sitting back and saying, okay, well, if you do that again, well, hell's going to break loose. And you're setting that person up because you're not prepared to step into the space and educate and grow with them and help them grow. You basically sit back and waiting for them to make that next mistake just so you can prove to yourself normally that, yep, this person really is an idiot, whereas you could have stopped that pretty quickly. In the first instance, had you addressed it, dealt with it, agreed that it shouldn't happen again. If it does happen again, obviously, clearly, then it's on that guy's or that girl's shoulders. It's interesting, John. I A number of years ago, someone showed me this matrix when I was employing people, and it was just a simple square, and I've used it. And I loved it. It was difficult to, to design and use to start with, but once I figured it out, it was great. And if you can imagine a f- four quadrants in the matrix, so four squares, square number one was all the things as an employer you'd have to do to make me, to be, for me to think you're a rock star. Yeah. So all those things. So for example, for my executive assistant I had in the business, her job was to anticipate 
appointments that were coming up and reminding me. I said, if you remind me so I don't forget because I've got phone calls and I'm busy, I'll just think you're a rock star. She did that all the time because I told her. The next one over is, this is what I want you to do to be competent. These are like the bare minimums. I need you to turn up on time. I need you to, you know- Fill the sheets up. Whatever it might be. Then the third quadrant was what will start- to make me think you're maybe not doing a great job. What'll start to annoy me a little bit? And the last one, which was the most important, was what will piss me off? Yeah. And then I kept that matrix on my desk and every time something good would happen where I think, wow, you know, the the lady's name was Kelly. She was a rock star. Yeah. She's done something great. I'd write it down. And then when something would happen like that, it'd piss me off. I'd write that down as well. And then we'd go through it every year and go, this is what you need to do to make me think you're a rock star. This is what you need to do to start pissing me off. She never did anything in the piss off category. She knew. And what that did was that allowed her to have complete transparency over the job of what I needed and what I expected. And so, she always far exceeded my expectations. But then if I had an employee that maybe wasn't stepping up and was pissing me off, all I'd have to do was bring out the matrix and say, hey, guys, we've talked about this. This These are the things. Now, on farm, it's going to be a different story, but maybe one of those things that's going to piss you off is leaving the gates open or seeing something broken on the farm, like a fence or a water trough, and not putting it in the maintenance schedule or something like that. But if you go through and document those things and show your employees, it does two things. One is it allows them to be a rock star. If they want to be a rock star, you can let them be. And then if they start doing the wrong staff, there's no arguments. So, when it comes to exiting someone, it becomes very clear very quickly. It's, on, it's, in, the, it's, on, it's in black and white in front of you. Absolutely. Yeah. And I found that was really valuable. What yeah. that also does, Ben, is it's probably exactly the same process I'd go through is the managers often are trying to work out what's in your head. Mm. And farmers are particularly bad at having everything stored in their heads. Very little is written down. You know, you can, I can walk into nine out of 10 farms there won't be a, s- a fundamental farm office. There's not a year planner. There's not a blackboard, a whiteboard, a weekly meeting. There's there's nothing. You kind of ex- you all. It's all done by telepathy. Everyone thinks that the other person thinks that they think they know what they're doing. Yeah, anticipate my needs. Yeah, anticipate my needs. Anticipate my moves. And and that's that'll put a lot of people into the, the pissed off box because you get to work one morning and you've set up all this. This is the manager talking. You set up this uh, structure for the day. You're going to do A, B, and C, and the, f- the farmer owner man or girl walks in and says, all right, right, today we're building a shed. You know, and you've just planned a whole week's worth of work, and suddenly how do you turn around and say, well, you know, I, we're not building a shed. We're going to do my schedule because I've spent a lot of energy and time working on that. So, yeah, getting – that's a really good point is getting stuff formalized, get it out of your head, create a structure that's – you, you know, you can work with it. I don't think there's a professional business in a city that works purely out of your head unless you are self-employed and only work for yourself and there's only one of you. Everything else needs to have communication and structure. Mm. And it could be something as simple as some things are just more important to you. So I, I dealt with a family recently, John, where the son and daughter are coming back on farm as a succession plan and mum and dad are super keen for it to happen, but mum has an obsession with weeds. Yeah. So if she sees any weeds around the property, they've got to be sprayed. You know, and she spends an inordinate amount of time making sure the weeds are under control. And of course, the son and daughter-in-law don't see the weeds as that big and important or to the level that she does. And so when we went through looking at, well, if they come back on the succession plan, the number one thing for mum was spraying the weeds. She said that will bring the succession plan undone is the weeds if they're not sprayed. And I think- not to dig into the succession planning side, but if you've got employees and things are really high priority, you've got to let people know, 
Or if it's really not that big a priority in the overall thing is have enough maturity or experience to be able to go, I just need to let something slide and let them do their job because you're employing them to be the manager, not to micromanage. So do you find a lot of people fall into the trap of micromanaging, John, and and just clarify what micromanaging is in your eyes? And it's probably the the biggest trap and and the thing that causes the most pain is exactly that. And the micromanagement managing of people takes place when there's not strategy in place, is my opinion, is that when there's strategic direction and a clear plan, micromanaging becomes less of an issue. But when it's, we wake up in the morning, meet at the shed, and then we decide what we're going to do, just by the nature of that that relationship, everything's going to have to be micromanaged. And exactly, you know, functional authority, I, I very often talk about functional authority, and that's, that is giving that person the function, which is to scrape the road or kill the weeds or fix the fences. You give them that function and then you have to relinquish the authority to that person as well so they can get on and do it. And the only way I know how to do that is to have the discussion, let's use your weeds, for example, that if if that mum wants weeds, weed-free area, you agree that that'll be the weed-free area because that's the one that irritates you and the rest of the farm will be kept to a certain standard of weeds, one per square kilometer, one per square foot, whatever it has to be. So once you've decided what that needs to look like, then the function is handed over to the person to be the weed man or the weed girl, and the authority is given to them that they need to do that function to a certain standard. And pretty much once you've got those two things clarified, you don't really have to go back to that. And if you do, well, then you, you've got a parameter to in, against which you can judge it. You know, if, if the weeds are in the garden where they shouldn't be, that's clearly not going to work because we've said that's got to be weed-free and the rest of the farm is how we've described it so we can get on with it and and move on to the next thing. Otherwise, exactly what you said, the, the manager just will spend his whole life chasing weeds because that's what's important to somebody else and that's really the work of a, of a farm worker, not mm. of, a, of a manager who should be doing – a farm manager should be making four or 500 bucks an hour and a farm worker should be saving you $22 an hour where you should be making the $500 an hour. So that's the flip really is the managers should be doing high priority stuff for you mm-hmm. and farm workers should be doing digging the holes. Yeah, and that's the the old analogy of the ten cent jobs versus the ten thousand dollar jobs. Yes. I mean that's what I see the biggest value of having employees is for a num is number one is you should be employing people to do the the lower dollar per hour jobs. Yeah, as stuff they go that through, has to get done. it has to get done, and then you should be spending more time in the office with the business strategy and also time with your family, you know, that should be valuable to you. And so I remember I had that discussion with a client years ago, John, where they had some employees, but they were micromanaging them. And in the end, I said, I remember saying to them, you know, you've got to start letting go. You've got to start letting your managers and your your workers do those jobs. You've got to get off farm and get back in the office. And we talked about 10 cent an hour and $10,000 an hour jobs. And I remember sitting down with him afterwards and saying, you know, you've missed out on buying the neighbor's property that came up for sale because you weren't in the office, you weren't talking to the neighbours and you weren't looking at your strategy, you were fixing the fences. Yes. You know, yeah. you, were, you, were, you were restraining some barbed wire or painting the front gate. Um, and as soon as he did that, they managed to buy another neighbour's property and it made them millions yeah. doing it. And so he said, he came back one day and he said, Ben, now I understand what you're talking about. He says, the time that I'm down on the the, the tools, painting the front fence or f- welding up the yards, yeah. he says, I could be making far more money doing these these other things. Other jobs, yeah. Yeah, it's that old saying that I've heard for the first time when I got your head down, bum up. Yeah. 
you know, and um, farmers will say, well, what do you mean? How do you work out what is my value to the business? I say, well, if you're not putting down at least what a corporate type of a salaried person is getting you, you're missing the point. And even more to the point, if you're not, I'd just take your gross turnover of that farm, call it a million dollars or $10 million, divided by the number of hours that you put into that business. And that's probably what your salary is or what your worth is. So I do that regularly. And you know, it comes out anywhere between a thousand and $15,000 an hour for some of the, for some farmers. So if you're not making $15,000 an hour decisions regularly, well, you're probably making $25 decisions. And that's exactly what you're saying is, and unless you, your head is up and you're scoping, you're going to be stuck in first gear. And, um, it's confronting when you ask people to start doing that because it's, it's not learned, but rather the other way around, it is learned. It's learned not to do that. If you're not dog tired, filthy, dirty, and fall asleep watching telly at seven o'clock, you haven't had a productive day. That's- Absolutely, yeah. And and I think this is the problem is the natural instinct for a rugged individualist, you know, in the rural community is to just work harder, 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 harder. And so they'll make the comment of, you know, I'm working as hard as I've ever worked in my life, Ben. And I'm like, yeah, but you're taking the easy route. Yeah. And they look at me and go, what do you mean I'm taking the easy route? I'm working from dawn till dusk, seven days a week. I'm working my guts out. I said, yeah, but that's the easy. You can do that every day. You know, you go out, you go fencing, you can do that. You're an expert at that. So get back in the office, start with your strategic plan, manage your employees, look for business opportunities, negotiate better rates on whatever it might be. That's hard. You've got to suck it up and start doing those harder jobs and stretching yourself and learning more. Yes, and that's what we're talking about you're here. You're good is, at that stuff. You, yes. You've never had to do it and you probably don't want to do it. So as you say, the simplest thing is to stick your head down your bum up and you just get on fixing holes. And I often, well, people say, well, how do I start? Where do I start? How do I take the first step into relieving myself from the, the head down stuff? And I'll often just say to them, well, there must be something that you don't like doing. And they'll rattle off a list. You know, 10 pages long. And so all those, everything you've just told me, that should be outsourced. Unless it's a function of the business, you know, a high, a high level function for that business, everything you've just told me, and it's normally maintenance and fixing fences and running orders and, you know, branding cattle. Those are the things I get more often than not from. I say, oh, I hate doing those jobs. I say, well, that's a perfect opportunity. Write a list and I physically get them to do that. List everything you love doing, list everything you hate doing and list everything that has to be done and someone has to do all that has to be done and if your name is not against it someone else's name had better be there because and that's one way of also working out how and who possibly the best type of employee you're looking for is someone who fits the I don't want to do box that person needs to fit that category and that description pretty accurately rather than have both of you agreeing on the stuff that you both want to do in the same box and the the I don't want to do box still remains unattended. So you've got to, that's a really simple way of finding a person or fitting a person to what's what's needed in the business is just do a simple analysis of what needs to be done and what I'm going to do. And just as, you know, in a side story, when I was challenged to do this back in oh, many years ago, it's been in the early 90s, I was sitting in a meeting of, I had an executive board helping me run my business of, of sort of people who become good mates. And one of them said, look, you're just not acting as a farm owner. You're just a worker here. You know, and he said to me, do you have a business or do you have a job? And I said, I have a business. And he said, no, you don't. You have a bloody job. And I said, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, you are just the head down bum up guy 
running yourself ragged. And I said, well, how do I unbundle myself from that position? He said, okay, I'll challenge you to take a day out of the week, every week, and you sit in your office. And um, I might have said this in one of the earlier podcasts, but he said, basically, I'm challenging you to sit in the office. And if you don't do anything, that's fine, but you're not allowed to go out and work for a day a week for the rest of your life. And I said, sure, that's going to be a bit of a tough one. So I took it on, and uh, for the first, I don't know, two or three months, I took a Thursday off. I decided Thursday was a good day, and I literally hid in the house. I put my broad T-shirt on. I wasn't allowed to put work clothes on, so I put my shorts and a T-shirt on and a pair of flip-flops, and I basically hid from everyone because I was terrified that someone would see me, the owner, the worker, not doing what that person is supposed to or expected to do. Yeah, you lazy bastard. That's what you're worried about. Yeah, wasn't and it? eventually yeah. I sort of snuck out onto the veranda and read the newspaper in the morning with a cup of coffee and I watched the workers and the tractors and the people go by. And I actually quite enjoyed that response to seeing all the hard work that you had done actually still functioning. And I also realized that I wasn't that important in the business, which is a great revelation. It's, I thought the business would just come to a grinding halt if I, if I wasn't there at six o'clock every morning. And I realized that the that's probably the first time I realized that the managers I had in place were very capable and functional people that they didn't need me there every day. So yeah, and that developed into a lifelong journey of using physically using it that Thursday every month, every day of every Thursday of the week to do all the other stuff. And I, I learned to be a very proficient uh, share investor, property investor. I learned all the skills of, through, of succession planning and conflict resolution. And that, that time I freed up, I bought properties, farms, because I had the time to look at the business from a different perspective. So all my big decisions, which weren't necessarily earth shattering, but all the big ones I made in my business and my family life came from the fact that I took a day away from the business to look at it from from a distance. And that's a really important point. I mean, people like, I think it was Albert Einstein said most of his ideas came to him when he wasn't working or thinking about them. Yeah. So we've got to give our brain a bit of a break to be able to come up with the genius that we need to. And there's a couple other things in there, John, I just want to quickly unpack there was number one, as you said, you had a job not a business. Mm. And I think I'd probably challenge and say you're probably a shitty employee of the business. Yeah. There would have been far better people that could have come and worked for you. And so employing someone to come in is is the goal is to find someone, all the things that you're either not good at or don't want to do, they love doing. Yeah. And so when I employed my team, it was like I got people that were exactly the opposite to me, my team. And I'd say, look, these are the things I don't like. And they'd look at me and say, we love that stuff. You know, let us do that. And then the stuff that I did and I enjoyed and was good at, they all looked at it and went, there's no bloody whale. We want to do that stuff, Ben. And so finding that right person and because we have this guilt like that, that, you know, if you're not doing the job, and you're employing someone else to do a job you don't like. It's like, oh, geez, am I being? Is that the wrong way to am look I being at nasty it? To this am I, yeah, am I, am yeah. I giving them? You know, there's there's some sort of problem there. But yeah. realistically, the right person comes in and says, you know, I, I I don't want to think about the big picture, John. I don't want to do the financial controlling. No. I don't want to go talk to the bank manager or the accountant or negotiate the no. fertilizer prices. I just want to go out and check the bloody water troughs. I want to be able to muster the cattle. I want to be able to drench them. That's what I love. That's my happy place. That's my happy place. Yeah. And so you employ people to do that, which makes it a much more enjoyable experience. So, John, let's say you've got a farm manager in place, and I'm just conscious of the time. We're starting to get towards the end of things. Let's say you've got a manager in place, and things haven't maybe gone as well as they could have. Yep. There's two things I want to approach, and we'll start with the first one is, how long do you think it takes to realise that they're the wrong person? 
So, you know, you bring them on, you spend a period of time. Is it something you, you reckon you can, you can pick up straight away and you should make a call very quickly? I think it is, to be completely straight up. I think you, it doesn't take that long for you to realize that you're not compatible You'll probably call it a mistake I've made. You know, you'll say, "Well, I've made a, I've made a huge mistake here employing this person." No, you haven't. You've just you just haven't got it right the first time around. I think you do pick it up pretty quick, um, and it's normally because of values. You know, values just don't sit hard. And part attitude, of that's attitude, isn't it? Expectations, and I think it is. We then will find every excuse in the book to justify why we should keep that person. What are some of those, John? Well, it's damn hard to find another one. Mm. We've, look what we've just been through. We've just been through six days, six weeks, six months of hell trying to, number one, motivate ourselves to be brave enough to employ someone and go through all that. And it's also become a self-fulfilling prophecy that everyone and everything everyone's told you how difficult it is to work and find managers has just come true because now you've got the wrong person, but we're going to just probably try and justify that little, we'll train them out of it, we'll get on better down the track if we if we stick at it. And we'll all love each other eventually and it's, it's all going to work out fine. But the truth of the matter is that I suppose if the, if that person can't do the function they were employed for, so if, and I, my very first manager was exactly that, um, my expectation and their expectation just didn't line up. We didn't ask the right questions. And within oh, four weeks, we just, both of us knew that we weren't going to work together and we parted ways within four weeks of employing someone fairly high level. And the other guys, as I said, have been there 17 and 19 years. Hmm. And uh, we're a couple of wobbles in between with different other people. And um, But yeah, I think you know very early up, and I suggest that if that's the case, deal with it then. Don't try and convince yourself or let them convince you that it's going to change. Because generally, once you've set, set your mind to it, that that's not the right person, it's really hard to fall back in love with them if that's a way to put it, you know. You've kind of started the divorce proceedings and now you're just going to make excuses why to stay together. Yeah. So it look, it's that's that's there are obviously going to be exceptions to the rules where it's just expectations and communication misjudgments and uh, but I'd suggest if it's call it early, have the discussion, put it into your three boxes, you know, of what really makes me happy, the hero, the rock star, right down to this really irritated me. And if it happens, why did it happen in the first place? Ask the question. If the answer is satisfactory and you've got commitment that it won't happen again, I always give a person a second crack if they admit to we could have done better here. If they admit. Yeah, if they suggest that it was not necessarily their fault, but mm-hmm. certainly that there was a better way to do it or a different way to do it. And that's a great – it lends itself to a great opportunity to educate and build that person up because, look, let's face it, none of us know, are, are good at most of this stuff. So everyone learns. And the more you learn with the person, the more trust you build. And uh, yeah, trust is a huge chunk of that conversation. If you can trust each other's judgment, if you can trust each other's integrity, you can have those conversations. If if you don't have that trust, then you just don't have that that level of, um, of connection. It's interesting, John. One of the things that I always found with trust, it's an interesting one, and I remember I read read this a while ago and I came up with something I called the trust model. Mm-hmm. And essentially, people think trust is about honesty. You know, I get this employee in and they're, they're as honest as the day's long. Yeah. So, I have a high level of trust, which is actually couldn't be further from the truth. You can have someone that's really honest, but you don't trust them. Yep. And the reason is, is 
they have to be obviously honest. That's one of the, the factors. But the three areas that I always look for is competence. So they have to be competent on what they're doing. That builds trust. So yep. you send them out to go and, I don't know, check the troughs you know and you don't have to worry done. about it. So that's, that's how you build trust. Yep. Number two is sincerity. When they're doing the jobs, they're sincerely trying to do the best for you. Yep. Not just saying that, they sincerely do. And you get to feel that over time. And the last one is reliability. So they turn up on time, they do what they say they'll do, et cetera. And so that's what you want is that competence, sincerity, and reliability. Now, flip the coin. If you want to build trust with your employees or your farm managers, you've got to do the same. You've got to be sincerely give a shit about them like, and and that they get a fulfilling place to work. They're safe. They're looked after. There's opportunity for them. You have to be competent at being a manager of the manager. So you need to continually improve and, and realize that it's not always their fault that things don't go wrong. It could be the fact that you are the one that hasn't done a great job of managing them Very or awesome. setting expectations. Yeah. And the last one is you have to be reliable. If you say you're going to do something, do it. If you're, if you're going to give them the opportunity to grow into that position, you can't micromanage them. You know, you've, you've got to be reliable when it comes through and dependable. Yeah, so I think that's the three areas that of trust. It, and I think the one that all of us, myself included, fall flat on is we take back stuff. Hmm. So we, we give them a level of, um, of authority and it doesn't go exactly how we think it should, so we take that back. And that doesn't have to be a physical or a verbalized taking back. They, they just know that you are not trusting them anymore and it's basically you're looking over their shoulder. And that's where micro- when you take back something, you micromanage them because you're dying to prove them wrong. Whereas I'm always trying to dying, I'm dying to prove my guys right. So even if they're wrong, I'm still trying to find the right and the wrong because it's never 100% wrong. I've never yet had a case that I can think of in my business where it's been a hundred percent disaster, even to the point where if a pivot fell over, you know, it, the, it fell over. Was it completely their fault? Never. It was always something else. Was the pivot old, you know, and very often the manager, the owner at least fails the manager. I see that more often than the other way around, to be quite honest, that the owner doesn't equip, educate, and then let that person go out there with support to make judgment calls because that's what we do as the owners we don't go out there and know it all and do it all perfectly we we need that support and um i think that's one of the biggest reasons to employ managers is to learn how to grow with them and also how to improve their skill level because at the end of the day if you're not improving their skill level all you're going to end up with is the skill level that the guy or the, the person or the girl came to that property with so if you prepare to put the hard yards in and upskill and educate your employees on on the job and in the job and not necessarily about the job just about life skill you know, how to deal with money how to deal with family how to deal with relationships how to be a better communicator those things are huge pluses if you can look for that in the manager and you know in the business how can the business serve number one you and how can the business serve the manager and maybe that sounds a bit altruistic but it really does take the focus away of of the right and wrong, you know, you, we, it stops us focusing on who's right and who's wrong, but where can we find space in this business to allow everyone to grow, not just the owner? Yeah, I think that's a really good point, John. We're starting to run out of time now, so I think we'll start to wrap things up. Just one point from me, John, that I wrote down and I think is one of the golden gems out of this from you is the whole be curious. I think if you've got a manager or any employees is figure out what they want. You know, what is it they're trying to achieve? And the, and the sooner you can figure out what they want, if that aligns with what you want, 
make sure you try and get it for them. That will take a lot of, away a whole lot of friction for you. I think that's be curious is probably what I've taken away. So, John, before we we wind up, mate, is there anything more you want to add? I know you've got pages of notes there as you've been <laughs> scribbling down and you're a wealth of knowledge, mate, but is there anything else you'd like to add about this topic before we, we wind up? And just to say that most of the early pain is the conversation around that is often about salary, about money. So the thing I've learned that's probably the most important is the salary you offer has to cover their basic needs, plus a bit. When I say basic needs, you can't employ a family of a husband and wife and three kids and pay them an award type of wage out in the middle of somewhere else. The, the salary absolutely has to cover their expectations and their needs and have that conversation. What do you need to earn in this business to make it absolutely ridiculously attractive? And then if they say 100,000 bucks, well, then you say, that's absolutely fine. I'm more than happy to pay that. Do you mind just putting on a piece of paper that will be addendum to your contract what I'm going to get for that? What is it that I'm going to get from you for 100 or 150 or $200,000? You tell me what I you're going to bring to the party because I'm telling you what I'm bringing. I'm bringing a hundred grand. I need to know from you what it is. And that's such an important starting point. So you never have to discuss money again. If my managers set their salaries, and I, I've told a lot of people this, if after a couple of years, I realized that just setting a salary was just a, was a futile exercise. I basically asked them, you tell me what you need to earn. I'm happy to pay it. For that, the deal is you're going to tell me what you're going to bring to the table for that, for that salary. That's the one thing. And then the other one was motivation. What motivates managers? And I've had a couple, one is motivated by money. So money was always an issue that for 10 grand extra, I'd get 20 grand extras return. The other fellow is totally not motivated by money. As long as he's covered and he's got everything he needs from the salary, he wants travel and experience. So every single year for as long as I can remember, We've paid for him and his family to do an overseas trip. Tickets, hotels, and, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's we're talking tens of thousands. Not, you know, it's not big money. And that motivates that person for an entire 12 months, knowing there's another one coming. So you really have to work out what motivates people. It's a bit like the love languages that some people might be familiar with. If you're pressing the money button and it's not a money person, you're absolutely wasting your time. Find out what motivates these people and attend to those needs and supply those needs I tell you what, the rest of it just goes away and you can forget about the money conversation. From that day forward to a large extent, cover the base and then motivate them with what motivates them. Mm. That's an interesting point because some people it could just be they want to be appreciated. Yeah. And it may not be a money issue, you know, it could just be be that sort of things. Or also too, their money expectations might be nowhere near what you thought. Yeah. You might be thinking uh, 120 and they're thinking 100, just using yeah. s- silly examples. And if, they, mean, if, they, uh, if they inflated to what you think it is, I still don't have a problem with it. I just say, well... Well, put it this way, when, when up salaries every month or every year or whatever it's going to be, uh, they said that. I suggest it's not a bad idea. It's, you know, if they're getting paid 80 grand and they want 85, I don't believe inflation should come into the that's, – that's the base. You've got to have that covered. So what is the extra – and if they're, if they're calling for extra, just sort of find out what it's for. It might be for school fees. And then you say, well, that's – you know, I understand. I've got you. I've also got kids. And it doesn't matter how hard I work, I can't earn more unless you pay me. And if I'm going to have a family well, and, you want, and I want to stay in this job and that's why where I want to be, you know, motivate them with, with paying the school fees. And I think the end of the day, the right employee 
or the right farm manager is cheap at any price that they're cheap, yeah. and the wrong one at any price is bloody expensive. Very expensive, yeah. And you know, my last thought is a lot of people are scared of employee managers because they know they're going to leave. And someone said to me, he said, as long that's that's hundred percent given. I mean, no one stays. Doesn't seem to be that anyone stays in a job for very long these days. But just don't be a a manager employment center. Someone said to me. So if you start with a manager who's got a very junior skill level and you take him up for five years and now he's a middle-class type manager, don't, for goodness sakes, employ another startup. Employ your next manager at the middle manager level because you're already paying him more than the, the junior, but your temptation is to go back to the cheap and you just end up being a, tra- a manager trainer center, whereas you never skill the business up. So you know, if you've had a guy there for five years, the next chap try and advertise for someone who's got five years experience. If he's been there 10 years, advertise the next position for someone who's had 10 years experience. So you're basically stepping up, not stepping back and become this training facility. And uh, yeah, that seems to take a lot of the fear out of, oh, shouldn't, I'm not going to do this because I'm going to lose him. Or her. I think that's a bloody good one, John. I've never heard that one, mate. <laughs> that's fantastic. So I think anyone listening, write that one down. Yeah, yeah <laughs> just don't helps. be scared of doing it. Just have yeah. a crack and uh, it's just relationships. The money changes hands regardless. It's the relationship that we are scared of, of, of entering into normally. Yeah. Okay. Where can people find out more about you online, John? In my website, um, at least my email is uh, john at growmorebiological.com.au. I do all my work out of there. So john at growmorebiological.com.au. There'll be a phone number there somewhere. Just pick up the phone, as I said, everyone, and just call me and I will ask you to email me because I'm that stupid and get that many phone calls in a day that I forget who I've spoken to. So your safest option is just to email me and um, I will definitely respond yeah fantastic john well look i'll put all those details in the show notes go back and if you haven't listened to any of john's episodes before go back and have a look and listen to those they're they're some of our most popular podcasts and i know a lot of people have got a huge amount of value out of that especially around as i said the succession portion of this is just believe it or not employing a manager succession planning it is it's, it's just the same story it's it's how do you grow a business how to succeed the management to somebody else, whether it be your family or manager, it's, it's all part of succession planning and it makes the ultimate part of succession planning a lot easier. So it's always tied up in the two, basically, I find. Perfect. Now, what's your definition of true wealth? I've asked you this a few <laughs> times and I'm guessing we'll probably get a different answer every time. But what's your <laughs> definition of true wealth, John? Uh, ben, it's interesting. I was, I've just come off, a, off the ocean. I did a 20-kilometer paddle this morning with some friends and uh, I asked the five of them while we were paddling on the on the ocean, what their true definition of wealth was. And almost all of them came up with time. Time to do stuff with family, time to do stuff with yourself that you're not just working but actually enjoying just that space. And it might have been a phrase I've used before, but there's a term that pops up all the time and it's called altruistic egoism. I don't know if I mentioned that in the previous chats we've had, but altruistic egoism is the pleasure one gets out of seeing other people succeed while at the same time you are growing and succeeding. So that's probably a very politician's version of a simple phrase, but it's really, it's, I get immense pleasure out of seeing my family succeed, other people succeed. These podcasts have been part of that. They've seen people you know, reach out and, and then start succeeding in what they want to achieve and um, do things they haven't been able to do before. So altruistic egoism is a term I've come to, to adopt. And that is getting immense pleasure out of watching other people succeed while at the same time growing and succeeding yourself. 
fantastic, John. Well, look, I think time is obviously a really important asset. And what we always fail to remember or, or people seem to fail to under, uh, understand is when you're young, it's a massive amount of time yeah. and a lack of money. And as you get older, it's usually more money, less time, and you start to value time more and more. So my bit of advice to any young people out there is just remember whatever you do, trying to buy more time with the skills you're learning will serve you well. Yeah, build build passive income into your system. Yeah, build targets and that's what management that's what employee managers does it, it allows you freeze up the time to look at other stuff yeah and we'll probably run over time but i mean it's not that different to retirement and retirement is just doing what you want to do not what you have to do and that's time time is when you can do what you want to do but you have an income so exactly my advice to people is is build time and passive income into your into your planning so that you um, you have that freedom at the end of the day to be able to make, basically exercise the choices. So I see a lot of people with a lot of money and no time, and they can't exercise any of the choices simply because it's not the money that creates the choice, the the op- opportunity. It's the time that you have to have. Absolutely, John. Well, look, thanks for coming back again. We always enjoy it. I know you said to me people are probably sick of hearing from you, (laughs) but the feedback I'm getting is that's not the case. So I appreciate all your time today and we'll have you on again soon. Yeah, well, I hope I'm making a difference out there and um, certainly the feedback is, is fantastic. Managing people is way more difficult than managing most other aspects of your business. So the easiest thing is just not to do it. So hopefully you got some gold nuggets out of today from John and are well positioned to either do better when managing your farm manager or to have some greater insights on how to do it effectively when you secure the right person. Just as a spoiler alert, I've got a specialist agri-recruiter on the podcast in a few weeks to discuss how to attract and retain quality employees, which is a major roadblock for most agribusinesses. We've got over 50,000 downloads on the podcast right now, which has absolutely blown my mind. And that's all because people like you are kind enough to share the episodes, which again, I'm really, really appreciative of. If you've got any questions, comments, or feedback, drop me an email at ben at the That's it for this week. I'll see you again in two weeks' time.